Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Agnesson. We're doing a bit of a retro episode this time. It's not on Zoom because I have not had the internet for the past, oh, four days. The guy comes tomorrow, and I'll be back with Wi-Fi, and Chris and I will be back Zooming, but we're doing it the old school way, the, uh, the old dual recording and then... Uh, me mashing them together. What? What? <laughs> are we in is, sync? Where this, am I? This, where am I? Where are you? What's happening? Is this thing on? Where? Where is this? What? What's going on? Yeah, we're used to seeing each other as we uh, as we speak. So doing it a little bit different this time. Although I do, I have to say, I do like this method. Um, the reason we don't do it is because frankly zoom is just easier but i like this because it allows me to perambulate about my space and i feel like i think a little bit better when my feet are moving mm-hmm. okay well you can always do that on zoom i don't mind you getting out of your chair i get you know i could do that too it's all right okay yeah good to know we'll do that next i'll do that next time i'll just get up and leave and uh well, sometimes you do. Sometimes you go look for your keys. You look mm-hmm. for your son. You look for your wife. You know? Yep. yep. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I... afraid to wander around. Come on. Yeah. It's it's on Agitator. Sometimes when we have guests, I'll do that. <laughs> They'll be like, where do, you, where do you go? And Kelby will just have to be like, oh, he's, he'll, he'll come back. He just, he just, he can still hear us. He, he's just moving around. <laughs> I don't know if I could ever do a podcast in a studio where I had to sit still for for two hours. Well, that's uh, what they tried to do with Jim Morrison. Imagine trying to pack him into a little vocal recording booth. You know, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know mm-hmm, that didn't mm-hmm. that well. That often worked out really well. <laughs> you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you know the thing is, it's the Alipo thing. Is that uh, limitations? bring out the best in the best people and the worst in the less best people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting interesting well that being said you sent some banger notes there is a new a third thing to introduce to the memory palace and swamp duality i was very pleased and i like that you bolded it in the email yeah, because it felt that. it felt worthy of a of, of bolding and so i've been thinking about it the past few days we'll have a, a good show for you but do you have a band in an aphorism for us today i do just to start off with uh the band is called the accelerants hmm. and they are involved with leveraging new age beliefs the Jackass series and TikTok daredeviling, post-cultural despair slash hysteria, and that Gwyneth Paltrow sort of wealthy privilege goop. Everything is good if you have money to spend. But it builds on the idea that you put forward that if something's not religious in sentiment, and let's not get confused about what we mean by religious. David meant something very specific. If it's not religious in the sense of a larger adjudication force, 
Well, then it can't be the next big thing, can it? <clears throat> so, the accelerants dress as atomic age cartoon characters, like in a kid's show. They provide people with controlled near-death experiences and then record the events. Their multimedia project is called Quench, and their tagline is Quench the Thirst, Quench the Hunger, Quench the Fever, Quench the Fear. And I think that could really catch on. Yeah, I could see that. It's a cool name, too. I like the accelerants. Yeah, it's kind of fun. And that they're a mix of silliness and real, real hard edge seriousness, you know? Mm. And mm. I think that might be, you know, where we need to get to. And then my aphorism is um, I'm kind of getting into a little bit of the, uh, the seasonal mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It so, the, it's, well, I, it's almost Thanksgiving, so. Well, and and also all the other decorations are popping up. We're starting to blur. And this is one of the things that we'll get to in in the main body, I think, is that, you know, time is blurring. And and we're, you know, milestones are significant because there's milestones, not mild blurs, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything starts to sort of smush about this time of year. And I think people start to feel a little bit more frenetic and you know it's not just the family pressures it's it's also a larger you know it's and it's not just the commercial pressures it's uh it's a mush so my aphorism is this it's not the holiday season reindeer that get my goat it's what's happened to them pinning that process down to one accurate and truly inclusive word is tricky and I really think that is a real challenge I I think that what we've done to reindeer and very few people I've ever met have actually seen wild reindeer in person can really say what it is that's happened to reindeer. Yeah, we've symbolized them, we've commercialized them. There's a lot of ways to put it, but I challenge anyone to really pin it down to one single word. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that commercialization is is the way to go because people are obviously not making necessarily money out of it. I think it's it's much more bizarre what we've done to the reindeer as an idea, mm-hmm. you know? So that's my aphorism, to get us started. I like it. I like it. And for my imaginative challenge. Oh, here we go. Here we go. All right, we're, we're back to a real... Uh, TV movie style scenario, but this is a nod to um, our wonderful collaborator Lisa Sazati, who participated in our teacher talk episode, which is actually one of our most popular. And I think that um, 
There's a, there's a good reason. She's got a wonderful, sexy voice. She's so intelligent and has been, uh, you know, a lifelong professional in that field. So I thought I might throw something your way that that kind of addresses her situation. And here is your scenario challenge. Lisa has a mild accident, a kind of car accident or some sort of mild head injury sort of thing, which startles her back to the realization that she's really a secret agent on long-term deployment. Recall our episodes regarding Hercules rescuing Theseus from the chair of oblivion in Hades. Wonderful story, that. Her life is entirely real and of her own, but she's been quietly stationed in North Seattle as an elementary school teacher, observing and collecting intelligence on alleged terrorism sleeper cells for years. Her reawakening of underlying mission coincides with the activation of one of these dormant terrorism cells. What brand of terrorism or societal disruption is she now up against? How does she respond? How does she be the secret hero she has always been and yet still remained alive with the suburban life and connections that she's made. Okay? Mm. It's kind of variation. I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, there have been several movies about this, you know, uh, mm. but I think it's a fun sort of scenario. You know, I mean, what is a, a North Seattle suburban elementary school teacher who suddenly wakes up and realizes that she's a secret agent uh, and has been all along how does she deal with it? And, and who are, who's the opposition now? Mm, very good. All right. Let me just make one quick note here. All right. Excellent. So, I think there's a Gina Davis movie kind of about this. Um, <clears throat> yeah. It's, uh, is it Point of No Return? No, that's a kid. It's something of. No, it's the long, it's the long something, I think. Oh, you're the long kiss goodnight. Yeah, that's it. There yeah, you go. yeah, I remember that. That was good. That gotcha. had Samuel L. Jackson yeah. also. Yeah, it did. Yeah. I like how I can throw you balls and you'll just reach up and catch them. Yeah, that was a good movie. Gina Davis too, hot, very yeah. hot. Yeah, um, well, I think kind of a nice sort of counterpoint to Lisa, who's, you know, I think we need to sort of have some different ideas about who the secret agents are, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so you sent me a banger of an email that I will, I rescued, I rescued from the oblivion of the of cyberspace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And um, oh, just a real, real quick update for listeners. So this is uh, this is right around Thanksgiving season. Uh, I have moved into a new apartment, and I've gotten most of my things unpacked. I moved everything by myself. The only real bitch of the move was the the queen size bed. 
uh, be, now I used to be a mover, so I can handle a queen size bet on my own. Uh, but the Oklahoma wind was kicking up something fierce and turning it into a sort of a sail at times. Mm. So that, that presented a challenge, but otherwise I muscled it all in there. Um, okay. Here's, let's just get into this note because there are bits of it that I actually sent to my writer friend group chat last night because I thought they were so good. Knowledge, memory, and the shape of time. The starlight message. Perception creates the past. Awareness is always at a time lag because of physical meat and nerve process distance. At the individual psychological level, we pretty well calibrate for this. Although psychologists like Andrew Sims argue that the first signs of mental illness invariably involve some kind of time distortion. Can we, I want to pause right there. What kind of time distortion? Just just being kind of unmoored in time? Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, Andrew Sims is, is wrote a beautiful book called Symptoms of the Mind. And I, I think it's, it's a book that I keep coming back to. Um, but he's alert to little changes in people and I think it probably comes from his own experience and sort of journaling his own you know mental health issues Uh, but the inability to to do certain things that are, are ultimately you know probably very simple unloading a dishwasher loading the dishwasher uh breaking up with family responsibilities, uh, running late, you know, a a constant kind of accumulation of disjunction with time expectations societally that then starts to reverberate in terms of personal orientation of time. And his notion is that, that really it's the personal orientation of time that really begins the process that and I think that's obviously right we start to not sleep well you know mm-hmm. we we don't respond the way we should in the right situations even on a micro level you know and this is the beginning of well what Freud would call neurosis I suppose but but Sims is looking more in the contemporary terms of what mental illness is and how He would define, I I think, mental health, and this is my definition, not his, but he would define it as some sort of alignment of personal contentment with societal expectation. And the the medium for that is a kind of, the baseline medium is an agreement about time. You know, I mean, you and I agreed to meet at this time. Uh, And... Being able to meet your agreements, your expectations, being able to pay your bills on time, that, that's a really, really great, very pragmatic uh, idea. I mean, we think that's a, a, a financial issue, but it's often not. It's just like, well, I, I forgot to pay it, you know, I, I have the money. You know, it, it's, a dis, it's a time disjunction, not necessarily a financial disjunction. So this is the thing of just being out of alignment with expectations, but also having our sense of contentment and, and our fulfillment of, of expectations 
and our satisfaction from fulfilling those out of alignment with mm. societal time and then also there is the deeper sense of, of actually losing time and this is you know of course part of the substance abuse problem uh, you know lost time of alcoholism and drugs uh, mm -hmm. blackouts uh, all of those things kind of merge together in Sims perspective and I think they should merge they deserve to that is so fascinating I really do because you can also look at a kind of uh, whether it's blackout time or stretched out time as inhabiting the same space as uh, you know a really good acid trip or a shamanic uh, journey for example right and, right and and that's that's sort of the um, well it brings to mind uh, the popular Russian idea that the homeless and the schizophrenic are in fact touched by God and that very 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 thin line between madness and enlightenment both of which share this kind of substrate of time distortion it's very interesting to, I, I really like that a lot well, it, it puts us in a great, you know, conflicted position, which is where we also like to be, and we encourage other lost explorers to be. You know, the Russian position that you just outlined is, is, is Kerouac's idea of the bodhisattvas on the street. But mm -hmm. there is this shamanic possibility, but it's a very, very fine line between that and being nutcases. And yeah. this, is a, this is a hard thing for us, as in you and me, to, to negotiate. And we, we do try to, to actually acknowledge and <laughs> therefore navigate more effectively this conflict, whereas uh, you know, many uh, people just try to ignore the conflicts in their position. We try to embrace them and use them as maybe more reflective uh, mm -hmm. tools mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to to better navigation mirror compass you know mirror compass absolutely continuing on with your note modernity has given us all a new vista of cosmic time and space-time entanglement a light year equals six trillion miles the geological deep time that john mcphee and others speak of have changed our notions of the age of earth Think of the clock analogy, of how recently life has appeared, etc. But these ideas are so vast and daunting, they may not be quote-unquote real for most people. They may form the essential mist of the swamp, concepts too big to have actual form. I'm reminded of a program that my son watches called Brain Candy, which is attempting to show the children how long ago dinosaurs walked the earth. <laughs> and they use a, a sheet of paper, the width of a sheet of paper, or I'm sorry, the height, rather, of a sheet of paper as a thousand years. And, you know, they say the, the whole of human existence is this tiny stack of paper. And then the dinosaurs existed. You'd have to have a stack of paper the size of the Statue of Liberty to go back that far. And when you think about it that way, you think, oh my, they, they do another one with the size of the galaxy and uh, uh, marbles in a football stadium. And, you know, right, by the time, right, you, by the yeah. time you get to Pluto, you're, you're 
outside of the stadium and then by the time you get outside of the galaxy you're in vietnam right you're like holy but that sense of scale it really is it's so big there has to be a german word that articulates that that feeling right it's not quite the sublime uh or the uncanny but it is a kind of terror uh an unnameable lovecraftian terror (laughs) at the sheer size of things um anyway i thought that i thought that point in particular was interesting well i like how you uh continue to uh insinuate uh and i think it's a great verb to insinuate Lovecraft's influence in our discussions because that's sort of not necessarily part of my program, but I absolutely hear it when, when you do. I, what, what's interesting to me about what you just said is that I was really the first generation to be exposed to the mass production of dinosaurs as in dimensional toys and beyond, you know, just pure illustrative excitement. Charles Knight, I think people would know, is one of the major natural history illustrators of dinosaurs. He's featured in the Museum of Natural History. He's one of the key people who really brought that whole thing uh, into major sort of focus. But suddenly dinosaurs became enormously... Uh, popular as as toys, as ideas, as sources of wonder and possibility, and I think clues to the larger swamp that we mean. And for listeners who uh, haven't tuned into our early episodes, what we mean by the swamp is a category of mind that we as individuals create, that all the things that we can't understand and don't necessarily want to understand things too big for us dinosaurs are actually on the edge of that they are things that we can grasp and hold on to and and deal with and and kind of aspire to um, and and actually play around with so they're a, a, a mechanism of finding a way of dealing with the gigantic time scales that modern science has opened up to us which are in fact not at all new because the all of our ancient mythologies are all about dragons and monsters and nothing really is new that way um, but I think it's interesting that that Gus is into dinosaurs because that's kind of a link across generations and I think that we're all going to be desperately uh appreciative of links across generations you know I think that's really one of the things that's going to be the well that's going to determine whether or not we survive have you heard the conspiracy theory that dinosaurs are fake oh sure well I mean I think there are multiple uh, variations on that what what specifically do you mean here because I, I don't want to respond out of out of turn if, uh, but I have heard other, you know, many variations on that going back a long while. Well, the evidence that they give, and by they I mean the conspiracy theorists, is that the the bones that you see in uh, 
like the Museum of Natural History, for example, <clears throat> are mostly reconstructions and are not the, the, the true bones. But the motivation behind the dinosaurs being fake, and I thought this was really interesting, is that it was a, a scheme cooked up by big oil to make people believe that oil, that oil itself is a finite resource that can, because in their conception, oil is produced perpetually by the earth. There is no shortage of it at all. And they cooked up the dinosaurs to make you believe that this could run out, which justifies things like price hikes and gouging and things like that. I, I, I find that really, really fun. You know, it, I, I hate to uh, break with the high intellectual temper of our discussion, but this reminds me of a moment in central Nevada, a small town called Alamo, like the Texas Alamo, of course, where there is a Sinclair gas station represented by Brontosaurus Dino Sinclair and one late night coming back from Area 51 certainly one of the conspiracy theory capitals of America which I often go visit I watched a rather let's just say she was plus sized woman mm -hmm. drop her shorts and leap onto the back of the large, and she kept saying large, plastic brontosaurus, riding it to just an orgasmic level of intensity <laughs> at about, I don't know, just on midnight in central Nevada. You kind of notice these things when, you know, a plus-size oh, sure. woman just strips off and leaps on a plastic dinosaur. And she was cheering the dinosaur on as the clitoral intensity obviously reached its climax peak. And it was one of those moments that I thought, you know, I'm really proud of myself for not videoing that, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was glad I was there to see it. And I was actually, uh, well, I was delightfully horrified, but also yeah. wonderfully pleased, as you may imagine. But I did not videotape it. But I think it is interesting about this whole thing about, ah, you know, well, dinosaurs are just frankly interesting in their own way. And we, we will never know about any of, of that. This, and I think this is to tie back to um, the thread is that we really don't know. The, these, this vision of the past, uh, whether it be you know, fairly terrestrial, as in fossils and bones, or all the way to some you know, completely uh, creation myth level of the Big Bang. Uh, and listeners may recall our, our roasting of Neil deGrasse Tyson last episode, uh, all of the people who believe in the Big Bang, I think, need a little roasting. Gently, uh, we're willing to listen to their ideas, but 
I think our big question is how do those ideas actually change our lives in the moment? And I don't think they really do. I think that what they do is add to our swamp of things we don't understand, things we can't quite deal with, you know? And that's not where David and I want to be. Um, so back to um, the, the plot of this. Um, I think that, yeah, these ideas are so vast and so daunting, they, they really don't have much real substance. So <laughs> what, what do you think about the rest of, of that um, discussion? I think that an idea being so big as to have no real substance depends entirely on the the type of engagement with it. I think that um, it depends on how it makes you feel and whether or not it encourages further uh, thinking. I think that the, the vastness of time, for me at least, can can be an interesting starting off point especially if you think about the the principle of every you know as above so below you know as there is this kind of vast time in that direction there will also be the time in the other direction and thinking of depth as a category uh, leads you to think about like the depth of the inner and the depth of the outer but for for most I, I would agree with that I want to get to um, to ghost time here yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, I, thank you. Yeah, let, let's proceed. Yeah. On the social level, things have gotten much stranger and cartoon-like. Internet speed, fast food, instant gratification, buy with one click. I've always thought that that was really sinister. Oh, have me you? too. Well, that's why I included it. I, I think it's absolutely... Uh, a phrase that chills me to the bone, you know? Every time I see it, I think that is so sinister. So, we begin to see some major disjunctions in timescales. On the cultural scale, I suggest that things have gotten quote-unquote simpler and yet irrevocably polarizing. Culture is now archival entirely. There's no longer any way to quote, live in the cultural moment, unquote. Everything is warehoused, or hypothetical, imaginary, fossils or phantoms. The concept of the of zeitgeist, that is time ghost, has been fully inverted. Ghost time. Wow. I really believe that. I really believe ghost that. Ghost time. I, I when I wrote that and thought that and wrote it again and then thought that and wanted to share that with you and listeners I really believe that this is the heart of what is going on and I think you and I have been talking about this from the start um, we, we are great believers in the technique uh, the analytic uh, psychic healing defense technique of inversion as a judo move uh, but it, it there's a reason for that because it's something that's imposed upon us all the time. And I think that this is what's happened 
In fairly recent time, I, I think that, that the time ghost of zeitgeist, of there being a lost generation or a beat generation or, you know, the counterculture generation, I, I think we've now inverted that entirely and we are now in a kind of Philip K. Dick scenario of things running backward in very, very peculiar ways that are are just messing with our heads and our souls and our, you know, our sleep patterns and all sorts of things. But it, it really is something that... Um, that strikes me is that this is the final zeitgeist to some extent. You know, I, I would actually say that I think this is what defines post-cultural. It's not an apocalypse. It's not a singularity. I think we've reached that point now, you know, on, on many levels. We talk about sports figures being the greatest of all time. Tom Brady, you know, and uh, Michael Jordan. Well, so time is over, you know. I mean, we're already saying that time is over. And so we're not really opening up a lot of doors for people like Gus and that generation. And I think that we've got to fight against this and, and also acknowledge that there is some truth in it and, and look to some new possibilities. Uh, I think that um, the educational program that we tried to outline my thoughts on that last coming out of the Lisa teacher talk mm -hmm. were the more I think about it the more I think that skills are the only thing that matter and I think that I can say that to someone like you and to our listeners and they know that I'm not saying that knowledge isn't important but I'm saying that, that performance is important. And I'm saying that only knowledge that can be performed is significant. And that everything else becomes an archival proposition where we're going to the internet, we're going to our phones, we're going to you know some sort of warehousing of, of knowledge that humanity created in the past. And we'll only dial that up when we need it, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but we're not actually taking on the responsibility of performing that very much. But, you know, you've just been moving. And, and moving really should, you know, you should get some help moving. But, you know, if we were building something together, you know, I would say, you know, David, you know, like drill this from or hammer this you know like let's do that you know it would be about doing not about well do you remember that song lyric you know <laughs> you know it's like do you remember it's not life is do you remember the, the you remember process. the gina do you remember the gina davis movie where she loses her memory <laughs> yeah well see that's fun look you know okay that's a nice counterpoint i, I take that point I, I think that is fun. Well, it, it's fun and reassuring to me that you have any idea about that. That does make me mm -hmm. feel better. Uh, I, I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want to dismiss that idea of shared experience, shared reference points. I think that would be really wrong to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that was very well said and very well timed. Uh, 
that you popped that in there just then because I, I do appreciate that and we all do. We need to know we're on the same page in some way with people. Mm-hmm. Well, to be able to drive in traffic with them, for starters, with any confidence. Um, but it's reassuring. It, it, it's, it, it's cheering to know that someone has uh, some reference points with you. Uh, I mean, that is the nature of culture. That, that is absolutely. But I would argue then back that that is an example of where culture is fighting against this archival tendency and it is living because it's in the moment because you didn't have to google on it because it came to your mind and Mm -hmm. you were able to share it in real time in a conversational you know supportive communal way i think that Mm -hmm. is exactly what i'm talking about what what we're losing is that ability to do that and we are absolutely losing that across generations you know i agree 100 percent. yeah these kids don't know anything <laughs> um the there was a, a a student who asked me the other day he said mr o how do you know so <sighs> much stuff how do you know so much mr. so many oh you've kept this from this is your oh. new name from now on. Oh, I'm, yeah. Mr. I'm oh, look. Oh, I'm a God. James Bond villain now. I mean, I've got the... I've, I've How got, did you keep this deep. to yourself? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Ah, uh, Mr. O now. Mr. O. Oh. Yeah. He says, how do you know so much stuff? And I said, well, I, I practice. And, you know, if you live long enough, you can... <laughs> You can learn learn things, and he said, uh, "Is this is a black kid, right?" So I won't I won't use the word that he used for for fear of, uh, you know, societal repercussions. But he he goes, uh, "I don't know, I know a lot of old dumb n words," and I was like, "Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point." Mm. Uh, and then I and then I talked about it some more, and I said, "You know, what I do honestly is I just." Uh, I just practice. I, you know, I work on my memory and I enjoy learning things. But I don't want to get too far off track because we are about to get into this. Might be one of the juiciest notes you ever sent me. Uh, just so full of just banger lines. So here, this paragraph in particular, I want everybody who is listening right now to turn your headphones up and listen close. Education has become a vocational training at best for jobs that are already disappearing. Wow. The conveyor belt of consumerism is running backwards. Wow. Kids never grow up and never leave home. They simply replace their parents. Oh, good Lord. Why do people like Elon Musk now talk openly about capital R replacement? It's a political theory and a widespread anxiety. Halloween decorations go up in some stores in August. Meanwhile, many schools ban the occasion or call it a harvest celebration, as if anyone knows anything about harvests anymore. Oof. The 24-7 news cycle, streaming, everything today is a manifestation of, and an attempt to distract us from, the time sickness. Nietzsche said God is dead. Maybe the better statement of modernity is time has died. That might be one of your best note paragraphs that you've ever sent. 
There's oh, so much to you. unpack there. So good. So good. Thank um, you. First of all, education is vocational training for jobs that don't exist. I don't have anything to add to that. It just bears repeating. Well, thank you. I think that's the state where we're at. And I, I, I think that educators know this. I think parents know this. And I'm afraid that students at all levels do not know this. This ties in with our, I mean, our ultimate commitment is to education and to improving society. I mean, our idea may not be the best idea, but we're, we're concerned citizens and we have a right to be. We're, we're part of the whole program. And something deeply is going wrong. And someone has to, if not be putting on the brake, shooting up some flares and saying, no, look, this just, this ain't working. And it's not working. And we all know that. We all feel that deeply. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, into Nietzsche said, God is dead. Maybe the better statement of modernity is time has died. That is such an important amendment to the Nietzsche statement. Because, well, in my conception of the whole thing, time is a part of God, or God is time, or what have you. But the actual vocabulary used here i think is very important i think time is dead or time has died is i think people would get that immediately if you Mm. just told them time is dead they'd be like whoa you're right because you know seven years ago is as close to me as yesterday and i don't even know what happened to three days ago that's that's been launched into the ether so right that's important that's in order for uh listeners for you to come along with us really internalize this concept of time is dead i think that's i think that's huge to the lost explorers canon i appreciate that i i think it is important i i you know I mean, the God is dead idea, well, that was coming in from a lot of different points of view. A long time before Nietzsche and a long time before Darwin, you know, and Darwin put a, a, was, was heavily involved in this, really, with, I mean, the theory of evolution, as he uh, put it forth, you know, in the mid-19th century, is really as much an argument against God and divinity as it is a biological paradigm, sadly, um, and Wallace, his contemporary and sort of competitor, gives us another view entirely. But I think that the time does shift. We start to get, you know, the industrialization idea of time is money, you know? And we start to commodify time in a way that is radically different than the past. And everything shifts. and. We've, we begin to lose the sense of personal time, psychic time, in a very private individual dream sense. We, we begin to lose family time. We begin to lose social community time. Everything begins to sort of shift around, well, frankly, the loss and death of time. You know? Yeah. I mean, how much of innovation supposed innovation after World War II is about time-saving devices, 
Yes, mm-hmm. and yet everyone complains of having no time. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely ludicrous. We've got frozen vegetables. We've got machines that do everything. We've got on and on and on. And yet, of course, it never works out in practical terms. But I think the deep cultural sense is we lost an idea of what time really meant. And we've certainly lost it generationally. We used to think of generations in terms of 20 years, 25 years. And now they're down to micro generations where it's like, well, do you know the latest Taylor Swift song? Well, no, you're, then you're in another generation, you know, on and on and on. We've, and some of that is definitely a, a, an expression of commercialization and consumerism, absolutely. But I think it's part of a greater cultural disjunction about the loss of a communal, ceremonial, magical sense of time that, to go back to one of our larger themes of what indigenous remote cultures, those that still survive, have in place and what they're trying to defend is precisely that sense of time. They really want to, con- they, they don't want Absolutely. to yield that to what, what would, uh, uh, and, and if you think about that for a moment from there, if you could even just begin, if listeners can just try to see that through, the, through a very strange lens. What we're proposing as a technologized developmental structure of <coughs> civilization is actually one of the crassest pornographic approaches to time that could possibly be imagined. And it must seem hideous to people who live and breathe with their ecosystems and their ancestors and their ghosts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and their children and the dreams of the future and where they see themselves in that it's not a progression it's not a spectrum it's not linear they see themselves as part of a mosaic of life a dimensional mosaic of life and you we are asking them to remove the dimensionality to make it linear and to freeze frame themselves into a kind of a truly pornographic notion of cultural time yeah it is the it's nothing less than the attempted murder of the eternal soul. Nice. And the idea, oh, the idea of the eternal past your, and the eternal future. Bless your Anglo-Saxon Oklahoma saintly soul. That is a gorgeous. Ex- that that's lovely. That's just lovely. Yeah. Thanks. No, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad I'm giving something back here because you're giving gold. Here you say. all of the ceremonies and ritual management of milestones and human maturing that we've been talking about since the start are about giving magical sense-making shape to time k-12 education is fundamentally about this unfolding process doesn't it psychologically feel as if quote everything has happened unquote i think we can vigorously join with the likes of jordan peterson and place the blame for this crisis squarely on the sagging shoulders of universities, specifically the arts, humanities, and social sciences faculties. 
Popular culture has always been a messy fairground. Sawdust and tinsel, bread and circuses, hogskin mermaids. Marketplaces and casbahs are jumbled, noisy places and have always been. Engineers think like engineers. We can't blame commercialism, technology, or the great unwashed. The fault lies with three full generations of inept social reformers who simply fail at critical thinking and have abandoned their stewardship. Love that word. Stewardship is my favorite uh, word to use. Um, specifically, not to bring too much current politics into it, but I've noticed um, with the Israel-Palestine conflict, there is this pressure to pick a side and yeah. to to kind of jump in and, and say, I mean, literally saying anything about it. That's such a hot button issue that anything you say is gonna get you in trouble. <clears throat> but I've started to notice that people from both sides of this argument have started going after people who have been quiet about it. And I refuse to participate, but the word that I think is, look, I'm engaged in stewardship right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm currently tending my own garden. Right. Gardens gardens right. will come in. In fact, I'll go ahead and read the line right now. Between the memory palace and the swamp was a garden bolded. And that if if you don't get it, you don't get it. <laughs> there's there's some concepts on this show um, and we'll we'll go more into this garden concept, but if you don't understand what I mean by that, then then I don't know what to tell you, right? If you can't see the value in tending your own garden and stewarding the lives of those around you towards a flourishing, then get on that level first, and then we'll have that conversation. Well, that's exactly right, and I, I, I think that I, I love that you embrace the idea of stewardship because you're clearly involved in that. As you know, I'm still a relatively new father and, and a relatively new teacher, and we've been looking for what lies between the memory palace idea of personal knowledge management and the swamp of all the things that we don't know. The way we manage ignorance, the way we manage all the things that we can't deal with. And my proposition is that there, there is a garden between, mm -hmm. that, that is the analogy. And I don't yeah. mean the Garden of Eden. I, I mean a garden in the sense of the great public spaces. Uh, you know, like the Victorian era creations of Central Park and Prospect Park in New York City, Hyde Park in London, Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, in, and the chain of great botanical gardens across Australia and the Southern Hemisphere, the kind of places that you and Rios would bring your son Gus to, to enjoy just some beautiful nature and a lovely you know, picnic sort of day off, but also to, to get in touch with some larger sense of culture that is living and that is not archival. And I think that this is where we, we this is my problem with uh, the liberal, or the extreme liberal progressive so-called academics who have abandoned their stewardship of the public spaces, of the gardens of knowledge, 
that I think that the universities and these great physical spaces have represented. Um, and it, it just, it really hit me. You know, it, it, it's something that, um, these are visionary spaces. You know, they're, they're, they're actually places where enormous differences in time scales can be reconciled. Not to mention socioeconomic differences. And also, you can cop a feel and maybe, you know, get a little action in the bushes. There's a whole totally. world of humanity that these great spaces could give rise to. And we're not creating any more of these spaces. This is part of my concern about the post-cultural world. Mm. Where is the new Central Park? No, right. it, it's not going to happen. It's going to be virtual, you know, right. if it's going to exist at all. And I don't think that's the same thing. I think that we have reached a crucial point where postmodernity is, is staling itself and we need to re-experience the direction, the vectors that led to it. Otherwise, we're going to just get more essentially cybernetic and lost in a fantasy world of non-physicality that will really, I don't know, I, I just can't imagine that being satisfying or even uh, non-psychotic. <laughs> right, right. Well, you mentioned... Uh this last part of the note you actually said most of it so but you did mention that parks have become homeless encampments and crime scenes which metaphorically uh is more potent than if they had just disappeared altogether if they just simply didn't exist um and i do think that these uh, these people who are perpetually online and who sort of want to pressure bystanders into you know blurting out uh support for one side or the other on all this i I think there's a connection between that and the current state of of public parks and the fact that we do not have a garden between the memory palace and the swamp because the garden it's not a liminal space between the memory palace and the swamp it is in fact, uh, well, it's a progression from one to the other. Mm. It's, it's, it provides the ability to move between those two things. And so I think that <clears throat> the evil version of the Memory Palace is uh, one that does not have this exit through to the swamp. Because we know that the people who I'm talking about have no access to the swamp whatsoever. And so the idea of the garden is anathema to them because they can't conceive of anything that's outside of their own virtual cybernetic uh, uh, memory palace. It's it's a corruption of the idea, right? Because the idea depends on its uh, opposite in order for it to work. So I just, I kind of see the garden is that important third leg of the stool that makes the whole thing stand up, basically. Like you have to have that. And when I think of the, I think of the memory palace and the swamp as more, uh, you know, environments that you 
sort of sink into and explore. Uh, but the garden is much more, it's much more of a verb. I, I almost see Memory Palace Garden Swamp in a very clunky sentence way, uh, is the garden acts as, as the as the verb there. It's it's the relation between those two things. Well, I think that's well said, <clears throat> and it's also an interesting disruption of of a, of a pure spectrum idea because the memory palace and the swamp, is our as we phrased it so far, are both very personal and psychological individual. Uh, states of mind, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. the garden is 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 social and cultural, and mm -hmm. so that is a mediating point between because we all know that we we just can't you know be on our own. We don't want to, how lonely that would be. We can't be. I mean, Lewis Thomas says there's no such thing as a single ant, and there's no such thing as a single human. You know, mm -hmm. absolutely not. Um, so the garden is a return to social sanity, but also perhaps a call to action in terms of how we negotiate that sanity. Uh, and I think that is in the garden, as in the park, Central Park is a, is a lovely, simple example. Uh, I mean, are you, are you going to yield Central Park to any larger social force to any ideology to any particular racial or sexual group or to people with particular amounts of money or anything no that that would be a defeat of the idea of central park you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i think that we all need to actually get back this is the strange engagement with between the very private intimate hermetic, psychological, interesting dream worlds that we're possibly capable of individually and the larger cosmological confusions, distortions, myths and strangenesses that we may touch on briefly but we really may not ever or we may need other existences to, to grasp onto but in between is a garden and the park the social park not the marketplace not Times Square not in, in, in very very practical terms not Times Square Central Park people who've been to New York uh, understand that exactly even people who haven't been in New York can get with me mm -hmm. there is something about Central Park that is a beautiful, beautiful, cultural, humanist idea. And it's also a, a larger naturalist idea. And I think that we really need to seize on that again and challenge our own time and our own so-called liberal progressives to, to reach out to that level of humanism. I don't see that at all in today's term. I see it actually as a... a, a an, absolute attempt to level every playing field and to asphalt every dream you know into to oblivion not creating new parks not celebrating the parks that haven't existed and it's very interesting to me that some of these things came out of the funding 
of some very hardcore capitalist 19th century uh, mechanistic, you know, aggressive, you know, sort of people that you wouldn't expect necessarily supporting humanism, community, family, and the growth of, of new generations and optimism. I wonder if we've been sold the bad bill of goods about who the supporters of that kind of optimism are today because I do not believe anymore they are the liberal progressives and I, I think that in the academic circles they have destroyed absolutely destroyed what the gardening possibilities are and yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna, I'm ready to go to war with those people. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect riff to segue into the imaginative challenge. I just do want to note that I like your turning asphalt into a verb. I thought that yeah. was really cool. Thank you. Um, because my imaginative challenge ties in. Lisa wakes oh. up. Yeah, here we go. And she, here we go. And she realizes that she's a secret agent. And she realizes that she has a mission. Her first question, obviously, is why is my cover that of an elementary school teacher? Why? Her second question is why, why here? Why in Seattle? Why in the Pacific Northwest? <laughs> why, why, why indeed? So she begins to do some research. She's spying <clears throat> on her colleagues. She is watching TikToks of teachers telling their kids that they don't necessarily have any real gender. And she's beginning to wonder, what is the connection here? What's the connection between this bizarre gender indoctrination of children? Children, by the way. Not, not even older children, like high schoolers, but five and six-year-olds, and this particular area of the country. Well, she uncovers a vast conspiracy. Ooh. Because, as Elon Musk said on the Joe Rogan program, <laughs> these people are anti-life. They want Ooh. to see the wholesale destruction of the human race. And... <clears throat> It ties in to climate change. They want to affect a natural disaster that will wake the world up and make everybody understand how important climate change is. But they have a problem. In order to get the Cascadia subduction zone to create an earthquake of a significant <laughs> enough magnitude, they need... They need bombs, tiny yeah. football-sized bombs yeah. to make that happen. Yes, they do. And, and they cannot acquire those bombs through any means because they're locked up too tight. The government has too much of an eye on those things. The government, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but the reason why toilet seats cost $600 and wrenches cost $1,000 for uh, U.S. submarines is because they have a process of documentation that is so extensive that it massively ramps up the cost of these items. They have to know, it's called from cradle to grave. 
So they have to know where the minerals and metals were mined, and they have to know every step of the process because of a. There were two submarines, the Scorpion and the Thresher, that imploded based on faulty nuts. And uh, so, anyway, that 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 process. I love <laughs> you so much. You're so you're so strange. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so cra- Anyway, that's a total digression. But the way that they are going to get the Cascadia subduction zone to create an earthquake sizable enough to really wake people up to climate change is to teach kids this weird gender ideology thing, right? You think you're a boy, but how do you know? How do you yeah, know? Yeah, how do you know? Yeah. How do you know? Yeah, maybe maybe you're like a bear. You might be a bear or you might be a mermaid. Yeah, right. You might you might be a mermaid. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at pop culture at large, there is tons of mermaid iconography. Chris yeah. Knowles has done extensive research on this. <clears throat> and he's always looking for, uh, you know, Rihanna in a Fenty ad as a mermaid uh, t- to try to prove that there's this mermaid conspiracy theory going on. But they find the kids that are the best at regurgitating this bonkers ideology back at them. And they start, they start lo- you know, low-hanging fruit. You're a boy, eh, maybe you're a girl. You're a girl, hey, maybe you're a boy. And over time, this is a 20-year program, they get them from transsexuals to transspeciesists. Right. Because the goal, the goal is to create a hybrid race of human mermaids that are capable of swimming to the Cascadia subduction zone and using their powerful echolocation <laughs> skills to create a tsunami <laughs> off the coast, Cannon Beach enveloped the Pacific Northwest underwater based on these mermaids. So it takes Lisa, our hero, our intrepid heroine, Lisa, on a on a John Wick esque assassination. Oh, test. there you go, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because she's <laughs> like really clear on her sexuality. Yeah, mm-hmm. she would be mm-hmm. a sort of a John Wick. Yeah, I think she could. You know, yeah, yeah yep. I like it. Yep. I like it. eventually ending in a transmogrification chamber full of human fish hybrids, very Shadow over Innsmouth style, that she must face off in hand to hand combat to save the Pacific Northwest and to save the world. Oh, look, I think she'd be happy with that. She's, you know, she's going to be a little bit embarrassed about us talking about her and, of course, and she's going to mm-hmm. be a little bit politically correct because she is, you know, a nice sort of North Seattle woman and an NPR listener and an elementary school teacher. But I think that there's something really interesting that, that you, you know, I mean... If, if people don't like what what you've just run down, well, I really want to know in in what very did I tactical say? terms yeah. why, you know? Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. It's one of those things, and this is so of our 2023 moment. You know you're going to get in trouble, but you can't articulate why. Well, I can articulate why. I think that what you've outlined is a very simple program of what defines male and female. 
and I think yeah. a lot of this they don't is like the dividing that. People point. don't like that right now. This is the dividing point about you know the whole identity sort of <laughs> argument, and you know frankly we're we're absolutely tired of that argument, and we're absolutely unconditionally as you know anywhere near liberal. We're not going to deal with identity in terms purely of gender identification when there are other considerations that get hammered into our skulls and balls, you know, about race and class. No, 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 no. I, I think that you've done something very interesting there. And I, I, I think we need to keep courageously, uh, you know, interrogating. I, I feel sorry for people who think that the, the verb interrogate is a, a confrontational bully uh, showdown in the alley. I think that's mm -hmm. a real pathetic position to be in because you obviously don't really have any future as an adult if that's your idea. Um, I think interrogation is something that we should be doing all the time and mm -hmm. we try to do this on this show and I think David just did a good job with that. So, um, yeah, I like that. I, I think that was fun. Cool. I'm glad you liked it. Do you have a tool and a tip for us? I, I, I've got, frankly, I've got a major. Uh, I've, I've got something that I think is, is significant enough to take to some of our heroes, people like Rupert Sheldrake um, and Terrence McKenna, if he were still alive. I, I think it's, it's a major idea that, that, that I, I, I want us to actually try to develop and formalize as a program of experimentation that we could seek funding for. Because I think it puts forward into very practical terms something essential. What I'm talking about here is a variation on the electromagnetic radiation spectrum. You can Google on that, you can look at that, you can see it as being very established, you can see exactly what's going on with it. It's a beautiful, beautiful physical idea that's been around for some time. What I'm talking about here is putting alertness and attention into that kind of formulaic, quantifiable, graded spectrum. So here's my idea. Imagine taking a football game you can Google on NFL highlights. They recap these all the time. They're like 12 to 14 minutes long. So you've got a, a, a fixed measure of something. Imagine showing a segment of, say, the Oakland, well, the, the, now the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, against the Miami Dolphins. And you get... 10 different groups of people. Some of them, the first inner circle, are people who are actually on the Raiders. I have this ability to actually reach out to some of these people. Referee, you know, players, coaches, referees, people who actually know the game. But while they're watching this, what they're actually exposed to is a apparently as synchronized as possible but not quite synchronized broadcast of another game 
by the same announcers. So the same voices, the same professional voices are announcing the game, but it's a different game. And then we move outward from people who are directly involved, who actually were on the field for that game. We move in segments to people who are less and less involved in football. All the way to people, say at like a level of 10, who have no involvement in football and all, actually don't like the sport. But we give them the mechanisms for real-time response as we do with polling debates. I think people will know how this works. It's called the worm. You can actually track it. And, and people, uh, film movie companies do this all the time with market research. So you can register feedback second to second. And it's entirely personal. I think what we could do is build up a spectrum, a kind of analogy to the electromagnetic spectrum of alertness and attention. How soon do people realize that this, the soundtrack they're listening to is not relative to the vision that they're seeing? I would suggest the people absolutely who were involved in the real-time event would give us a baseline and go, no, no, wait a minute, well, wait a minute. I think, but even then, I think there would be a time delay. But I'm suggesting that we actually construct a spectrum of attention and alertness of how two elements, vision and sound, link up. And I think this is a very, very simple uh, experimental. I, I, I would like to do this on a level of a thousand people, 10 groups from an inner circle of people directly involved in that football game to people who have absolutely no interest in absolutely maybe even hate football. But to move that across that and to get their direct response, I know all the technology uh, exists because I've seen it and I've been part of that. Um, you know, I, I know how this works. All you, you know, you're constantly sort of pressing sort of, you know, some simple buttons. But I think we could construct an actual electromagnetic spectrum analogy for human alertness and attention that really starts to open some doors about psychology in terms of how much do I care about this event? How, how much am I really paying attention to it because I care? Uh, you know, all sorts, I, I, you know, it, it would be just the beginning. But I, my tool here is that I want to be seen before I die as an intellect who is actively trying to find practical experimental crystal radio, garage level, kitchen table, family ways of talking about some things that I think are terribly important that are difficult to talk about, but I don't think they're out of the question. Well, I think that that, I mean, that's huge. <laughs> that's awesome. That's super cool. 
I'm glad you think so. I think it's one of my best ideas. I think it really is something that... Um, I think it's something I need your help with. I, I, I'm going to go to the psychology department at the university I teach at. I'm going to the Raiders <clears throat> because they're the local football <coughs> franchise. <clears throat> but I, 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 I... You know, Rupert Sheldrake, who's one of the series' heroes, challenges us to think about experimental testing. You know, this is what gets a lot of the, the hardcore scientists goat, because he is interested in challenging his perspectives. And you and I are too. I mean, we're, we're practical thinking men. We want to actually get some evidence in the real world. And this is a way to do that. I, I, I'm just proposing a baseline idea I mean, it's really the equivalent of, like, look at the Beaufort scale of winds. I mean, that's pretty subjective, isn't it? But it's very practical in another way. Like, you know, 75 mile an hour winds, you know, that's pretty significant. I'm talking about creating a spectrum idea, which is much more, potentially much richer in detail than any of the autism spectrums that all these people that we deal with all the time you know quote you know really I've talked to some of those people they have no idea whatsoever on the spectrum they say yeah well where on the spectrum you know yeah at like at 45 degrees at 58 degrees no they had they don't have any spectrum they have a really disabled idea of laziness because they're trying to just cover up the fact they don't have an experimental procedure. I, what I'm suggesting is trying, trying to have a framework for what alertness, attention, and also psychological inclination. Do you care about what you're looking at? You know, that's an important feature. You know, do you want to see that woman take off her clothes? Do you want to see that that play, that touchdown unfold? You know, those are factors. I'm, I'm trying to put that into some kind of experimental framework. And I think it's a lot more legitimate than most of the people in the social sciences today are thinking of. So I appreciate that support, Dave. We, we got any, any help people can offer. I, I really want to pursue this. I think it's a really... Um, good challenge. I, I never thought of myself when I was, you know, 21, 25, thinking of great experimental ideas. I do think this is a good experimental idea now at my age. I do. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think that's awesome. I'm curious, though, what is your tip for today? Uh, okay, well, this is kind of a nice variation on this. Who's in charge? Are you going to let a bunch of shelves and drawers rule your life? Couple of weeks. I'd suggest simply rearrange. I know this is going to get some people's blood. I love that expression now. Some basic items. Move spices from the kitchen to the bathroom. David, you're moving. You're probably doing this already. But... Don't seek to create outward mess or disorder. That just happens of its own. But tinker with the order that normally isn't seen. You know, 
What if the chili and Italian seasonings are over the toilet and not over the stove? Journal the effects. How quickly do you adjust? How frustrated do you get? You know, if someone had told me a long time ago that real learning is about survival of frustration, well, I'd have hit them in the head with a hammer if it was available. But I would have said that, yeah, you know, you're probably right. How frustrated do you get? Do you gain a new perspective on the sense of the old and usual order? Order, order. Do you perhaps begin to see some other examples that have less completely arbitrary decisions you've made presenting as order, 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 order when they're really just Well, <clears throat> this between the, I feel like this is a super banger episode. I know we have our our dream segment. Uh, unfortunately, I have to go pick up the wife from work. No, so. I think that's cool. You know, here's what I think about. I I um. I've actually got more dreams. To, I, I I think I've had a breakthrough after. Uh, well, I, I think I can confess like four decades of dream research recording and, you know, I think my, it might be closer to five. Um, I, I have some, some real things to share about that. And I think that my, that might be an interesting... Um, sort of palate cleansing break for next episode to just look deeply at dreaming and yeah. uh, some of the things we've talked about before some of the things that you've shared with your wonderful dreams but I think that, that maybe we could just focus on that exclusively rather than try to abbreviate them now if, if you have to move on I think it's just too rich there's, there's just some major things that have come together in my uh, experience just over the last week that I think are really needing to be blown out into just an episode unto itself. Perfect. All right. Well, then we will call that there and...